Hey there, spooky friends. It's Megan. And before we hop into the episode, I want to tell y'all a little bit about what we've got coming up in person next. We're so excited to announce that our friends at Little Cottage Brewing have invited us back for a monthly spot with trivia. So that means it's time to mark your calendars with a few dates to come hang out with us and play along. On December 13th, join us for Creepy Holiday Trivia, where we'll have questions ranging from spooky holiday traditions around the world, mischievous holiday mythical beings, holiday-themed horror movies, and more. Then, on January 17th, join us again for a deck themed around fears and phobias. Last but not least on the calendar is February 14th for a theme of romance and scorned lovers in horror. We can't wait to see you on December 13th, January 17th, and February 14th for some excellent craft beer and a scary good time. Okay, okay, okay. I get it. Now, on to the episode. Hey there, spooky friends. It's Megan, and I'm so pumped to have you back for another mini-sode of Clever Ghouls. Today, we're gonna be examining and chatting about the final girl trope in horror films, and then taking some time to talk about my favorite final girl portrayals. The term final girl was coined by Carol J. Clover in her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film in 1992. But this trope has been a long established thing in horror movies, particularly in slasher films. It refers to the woman standing who, after experience immense loss and suffering and witnessing the turmoil and death of those around her, is miraculously still alive somehow to confront the killer. She is abject terror personified. And there are a few specific traits that are often always seen in our traditional final girls. They're always young, conventionally pretty, and virginal or pure in some sort of way. And for a lot of women, the final girl is the physical representation of conservative stereotypes and cliched attitudes of what women should be. Virginal, subservient, untouched. But as the trope evolved over the years, opinions started to change a bit on the final girl archetype because there was this thought that it forces the men in the audience to identify with the woman in the climax of the movie, and that became a very powerful sword to wield. But as I mentioned, we really didn't develop this school of thought until the trope started to evolve because our original slashers that created this concept were all for movies directed by men, so the portrayals were often still stuck in this idea of a pure young woman who is too pretty and wholesome to be tainted by the evils of the world around her. They frequently served as a plot device or a foil to make the point that the promiscuous or sexually conscious women were the ones to die, but the virgins get to live. And an essay on this character that I'll link in the show notes for you Grace Pullman writes, but what makes a final girl really? She's virtuous. She abstains from drinking, from drugs, and from premarital sex. The final girl is modest. She's pretty, but unaware of it, demure. She's a good girl. This is why she lives while her more promiscuous peers die. The final girl is the gold standard, the role model for the impressionable female viewer. Which should make us stop in question. Is this trope rooted in misogyny? This question is actually a lot more nuanced than it appears on the surface and takes some teasing apart to answer effectively. But when we first started to see the emergence of this trope though, it absolutely had its roots in misogynistic ideals as it came from a male dominated industry with men who were afraid of the women's liberation movements that were going on at the time. And we understand that movies like all art are inherently political and horror movies are particularly invested in reflecting our societal anxieties and perpetuating these fears as an audience. This sense of fear and experiencing it as we watch these movies puts us in a vulnerable place. And when a character in a horror film dies, it's sending a message to the audience that this character was irredeemable for some reason. This is especially true when you consider the fact that horror posed the question, who deserves to live in society? And at the height of our slasher films in the 60s and 70s, as we're witnessing this final girl trope unfold, 
It's as if society and these directors are sending a clear message of what women held value to them in society. They created and idealized this perfect prototype of what a woman should be, and she was rewarded for her purity in the end by the sparing of her life. Meanwhile, these fictional representations of liberated, independent, or even sexually charged women were murdered and tortured on the screen. This goes back to our good friend Freud and good old Freudian psychology. While this character abstains from sex, her engagement of repressed fears and desires reenact themselves in the conflict surrounding those feelings. And even though she survives, the final girl never makes it to the end of the film without torture, blood, sweat, tears, and trauma. Someone that was once entirely pure and unsullied is now dirty and violated. In these horror films, the final girl trope plays out as a not-so-subtle male fantasy about corrupting virginal feminine young girls, and the juxtaposition created between the obedient virgin and the amoral degenerate is incredibly obvious. Our first and most notable final girl is Sally Burns from the 1974 film Texas Chainsaw Massacre. She's a non-sexual being who serves as a foil to her more scantily dressed friend. The original Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of my favorite films, but it is mentally exhausting to watch and one of the hardest final girl portrayals for me to digest. As Sally encounters Leatherface and his family, she is the sole survivor of her friend group and she must endure their strange torture. Just as she thinks she's escaped them, she's brought right back by a truck driver working for the family. From there, she's tied to a chair at Leatherface's dinner table. She screams and cries as a demented group of men laugh right in her face. Sally is a final girl who must go through absolute hell to earn her survival. And a few years later, we get one of the most iconic final girls, Laurie Strode from the 1978 slasher Halloween. Laurie is definitely the more meek and nerdy one of the friend group, and she decides to prioritize her homework and babysitting instead of partying with her friends on Halloween night, which is what she's doing while her friends are off having sex and getting murdered for it. In the end, she is studious, resourceful, maternal, and virginal, and... Ultimately, that's what she's rewarded for. In Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Clover argues that to applaud the final girl as a feminist development is, in light of her figurative meaning, a particularly grotesque expression of wishful thinking. Maybe the final girl herself is the feminism that we want to enjoy, but the demonizing of other women is the misogyny that we need to leave in the past. But now we're deep into a new era of horror, and the final girl trope is evolved into something much more meaningful. It has for many decades danced the line of misogyny and feminism. The final girl is still very much a prevalent figure in horror films. However, she's become much more complex and much more nuanced. She's no longer a two-dimensional foil to the villain. Horror directors have taken audience expectations of this iconic female character and subverted them in increasingly fascinating and creative ways. They try to look past virginity and male identification with the character to create a commentary on traditional gender representation in the genre. And while this trope has been reused, recycled, and reinvented over the years, there's a few final girls that really stand the test of time as some of our most iconic versions of this archetype. Alice in Friday the 13th, Ripley in Alien, Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street, Sydney in Scream are all classic examples of the final girl. And there's much more modern versions of her as well, such as Erin from Your Next, Jay in It Follows, Grace in Ready or Not, or Danny in Midsummer. And speaking of Midsummer, this movie and movies like The Witch introduce us to an entirely new retelling of the final girl. Thomason in The Witch is suspected of being a witch by her superstitious family in 17th century New England. She's blamed for a series of events that her family attributes to dark forces, including the disappearance of her baby brother. By the end of this movie, we expect her to clear her name of these false accusations, but instead she kills her family, albeit in self-defense, sells her soul to the devil, walks out into the woods, and joins a coven of witches as her naked body floats into the air and she erupts into euphoric laughter. She is no longer being repressed for her sexuality. 
the girl is embracing it. And one of our very first examples of the final girl trope being flipped on its head is in Scream. The characters in this film are smart, witty, and totally aware of the dangers around them. This is made obvious through a quote from Sydney, who mocks the way women are typically portrayed in horror films. Ghostface asks her, do you like scary movies? And Sydney immediately responds with, what's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act is always just running up the stairs when she should be running out the front door. It's insulting. She's one of our most famous examples of the final girl, even though she breaks some of the previous established roles of surviving horror films, like having sex. While the final girl was originally and is often pointed to as an exercise in the gratuitous objectification of women's suffering, many horror films use final girls to convey a much more feminist message. But why should we care about a trope that was huge over 30 years ago and barely resembles its original form today? Mostly because the final girl trope allows for women to take center stage and kick ass, something that a lot of other genres are lacking, especially if we allow them to flourish as sexual beings and keep fighting the good fight. The good fight being the one over their own bodies, image, and freedom. The trope isn't progressive or feminist because of its existence, but because of how much we have learned from it and how we've corrected past mistakes within the genre because of it. But that's it for this mini-sode. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something exciting. And if you like this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. And if you loved this episode, definitely still do all that, but leave us a review too. As always, it's been awesome getting to chat with you about these things, and I can't wait to do it again. Stay creepy, friends. The Clever Girls Podcast is run by Megan, Marissa, Blair, and Melissa. This episode was done by Megan. Our intro and outro music was created for us by Josh Marshall. Find his links in our show notes. For more episodes and other spooky content, find us on your favorite social media platform through our handle at Clever Ghouls. Don't forget to subscribe and share. And if you really like our content, please leave us a review.